Spectrum's brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College is one of the most comprehensive colleges of communication in the country. It offers a foundation of creativity and practice so that graduates can move the world forward. In particular, the Scripps College offers challenging coursework that holds students to high expectations an integrated curriculum that combines a variety of disciplines and ideas, and student-driven media organizations where students can apply these skills and gain experience that enables them to hit the ground running upon graduation. That's the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today, we're talking with Ed Zada. He's the owner and founder of RXQ Compounding, LLC. It's an outsourcing facility for specialty medical drugs, and it's regulated by the federal government. How safe are the special drug compounds you take or put in or on your body? Most people today think they're pretty safe, but that's not always been the case. Back in 2012, the New England Compounding Center in Framingham, Massachusetts, produced 18,000 vials of a contaminated steroid that were distributed across about 20 states. The tainted compound to date has sickened 751 people with fungal meningitis and related illnesses. At last total, there were 64 deaths. In 2015, that company reached a $200 million civil settlement to victims and creditors. But to date, nothing's been paid. The federal government also charged company head Barry Cadden with 96 criminal counts, including 25 counts for racketeering acts of second-degree murder. A trial began January 9th, and the jury just started its deliberations on March 17th. No verdicts have been reached at the time of this recording. Cadden, who is 50 years old, could be facing life in prison. Sixty-four people have died so far from the tainted compound. You know, I hate to call 64 people dead a running total, but there's still people that, that are maybe on the bubble that could, that could potentially still die from what happened years ago. So when you heard of this back in 2012, and, and I know you're an ongoing pharmacist and, and uh, you follow these things, when you initially heard about this, did it shock you or or how did you feel about it? Well, w when you think through what happened, um, this company, New England Compounding Pharmacy, um, there's a set of rules out there that, that they were following. Um, the, the problem, one of the problems was that the rules weren't necessarily what they needed to be. 
Um, the rules were set up so that a compounding pharmacy, which define back, that just well, so that people understand. Well, there's two two types of there's two different classifications that 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 we have right now. One, and this is all that existed in 2012, is called a 503A pharmacy. And that's, you know, I mean, my local pharmacy, the drugstores, those are 503A pharmacies. We have a compounding pharmacy at our 503A pharmacy. And and what those generally, what they're intended to be, and they've always been intended to be, is to make a prescription for a patient. So you come in, you're sick, doctor gives you a prescription, we, we can either, sometimes we put pills in a bottle for you and make sure there's no interactions. Sometimes we mix up a liquid for you. And sometimes let's just say that it, it's a it's some kind of a concoction that isn't commercially available. So, you know, at the, at the drugstore, we would compound it for you, which would mean we would take a couple different ingredients and get you a specific shape just for you. Um, what New England was doing was there's this, in, in, at, at the time and still in our 503As, we don't do any sterile compounding. And they were doing sterile compounding. And the rules in place when they were doing these, they just weren't adequate for what they were doing because they were making large batches of medications and they were sending them. I mean, I believe they came into this area. There's people, some people in this area that suffered. I know a lot. You know, I know some doctors in Michigan who are afraid of it still because they had patients that 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 had died or were, were you know had, had had issues. So, but they were following a set of rules that was antiquated. And the rules weren't necessarily um, the, the best. Um, so what happened? What happened was this: Congress met and they filed a DQSA, and the DQSA mandated that the FDA create a new entity for a 503B manufacturing outsourcing facility. Now. The difference between a 503A and a 503B, you know, in the United States right now, if you're going to use a product in a doctor's office uh, for non-patient specific use, it has to come from a 503B now as of like in the middle of January of this year. If you're going to make large batches of medications, they have to be made by 503Bs. We make, um, you know, Two, three thousand bottles of a medication, and the doctor's office orders a hundred bottles, and we send it to them. And but the reason we can do that is we follow CGMP manufacturing facilities, current good manufacturing processes. But what we have to do is every product that we ship out to a patient or to a doctor's office, we don't ship directly to patients. We only do doctor's offices or hospitals or clinics or surgery centers. Everything we do, we have to first, we test it for sterility. We also have to test it for potency. And then what we do is we assign an expiration date. And in our world, it's called a BUD date, which is beyond use date. And we have to prove these things. We have to go out and we do, if I've got a medication that, you know, I've got medications that have a, a bud date of one year, well, we tested that thing for a year. We did various tests on it to make sure that it was actually good. In the past, up until three or four years ago, you can go out to basically a cookbook and, and find a, a formula for a medication, follow that formula like it says, put the medication together and ship it to the patient. No sterility testing was absolutely necessary. No potency testing was required. 
and no beyond use dating testing was required. And what we found out and what the industry has found out, and a, and a good example, um, we used to package, sometimes we package these medications in syringes. And um, BD Syringe is a very popular company, a great company. They, they're a very, very, very good company. Well, since they're, since they're popular, obviously people use a lot of them. Well, they're designed not for medication storage. They're designed for medication use. So you draw something out of a bottle and you use it. Well, what was happening is the 503Bs were testing these products, and they were finding out that the medications that were in these BD syringes, well, it was losing potency. It's like, whoa, what's happening? Well, what was happening is the medication was being absorbed by the rubber of the, med- of, of the syringes. Well, been doing that since the 60s. Nobody ever caught it because nobody had a test to it until the 503B was created. Zata took advantage of the federal regulations and created a new outsourcing facility under the stricter federal guidelines. Describe your facility where you make these compounds. Walk us through something that, that, that you all make. We make some eye products. They're used for eyes for cataract surgeries. And this is, is uh, you know, they're uh, epinephrine, phenylephrine, a couple, couple different medic- medication mixes in them. And if you walked in our facility, you go into different zones. When you first, you get your street clothes on, you're in the hallway, you lose your coat and stuff of that sort, and you you. You put on um, booties over your shoes. You put a coat on. You put a mask on. You put a hairnet on. You put gloves on, and then you're in, in another, called an ice, you know, in another area. And then as you go further into the lab, and that's where all the non-sterile stuff is done. Your garb like that. And then what we do is we prep all the medications and prep everything, and we put it all in trays, and it's all sterile and ready to go. So then we enter the clean room. We have what we call an anti-room. It's something like a like an airlock. Mm-hmm. So you go into the airlock and the people gown up and put on the clean suits and all the everything that's coming in gets wiped down with, with alcohol, with sterile alcohol. Sterile alcohol. <laughs> gets wiped down with sterile alcohol before it gets brought into the clean room. And then once they're in the clean room, they clean their, their work area and they lay their medication out. And we have hoods in there that, you know, because you're outside the ante room, you're in the clean room now. And then inside of the clean room, we have ISO 5 hoods. It's just clean air. So we put the medications in so there's air flowing on them at all times so that they don't get any. It's called called first air. So it's clean air hitting the, your, your product every time while you're working with it. And then we package it from either a beaker or from a sterile to sterile inside of that environment. We package it and cap it. And the medication I was talking about, we package it. It's in a syringe. We package it in a one, a three cc syringe. We package it. We label it. We have barcode labeling and color coded labeling. And then we this med- particular medication is frozen. And then we freeze the medication and you know until it's delivered to the patient. It sits in storage um, a minimum of fifteen days for fourteen days for sterility. And then it also has to clear potency before it gets released. And then, and at that point, once it's released, we, we take orders and they they come out and we ship we ship product on dry ice. So all of those factors obviously uh, cost money. Mm-hmm. So does that all go into the end price then of the, yeah. of the compound? Well, but yeah. but if I pay more, I'm more assured that I'm getting something pure. Maybe if you use a five hundred three B, you're assured you're getting something. I mean, because we're required to do these things. 
Um, if you're not, I mean, you don't, if you don't have to meet the request, for example, like a frozen product, a 503A could make a frozen product. They don't have to do potency. They don't have to do a sterility and they could use that within a short time period because it's frozen. If we have a frozen product, it's still got to pass sterility. I mean, and potency before we can release it. Um, that's just, just, it's the way the rules are because it's back to that. Are we going to cause harm to one patient? Or are we going to cause harm to a lot of patients? It's, it's the choice how they decided to, to handle it. It takes extra care and extra procedures to make drug compounds safe. But Zata thinks that the federal regulations ensure quality and safety for unsuspecting consumers. You started your compounding business after the FDA regulations came in. The R503B, yes. We, we, we learned of the opportunity and looked and said, hey, this is something that, that's needed. And it's something that we can learn how to do and we'll do. And we, and we brought in people that were experts in the field to do it for us. Do you feel that that regulation and that regulatory level enhances your business? It created our business. And it does enhance it. I mean, as people start to understand the differences, as especially the doctors. I mean, you ask about the consumers. We have a hard time explaining it to doctors because nobody teaches them at med school. And, and the hospitals are finding out because they're going to seminars and, and it, things. And they're like, well, this is, you got to need to do things kind of this way. Um, even at a hospital, hospitals, like we're an outsourcing facility. So one of the things that we do is let's say you need a medication in a hospital and it's an injection. Well, if the hospital's going to do that, the same thing in a hospital, they got to go in and if they have to mix something, it's for one patient, one use. If the patient doesn't use it, they have to throw it away and they've wasted that medication. Whereas if they got it from us, the patient doesn't use it, they put it back in stock and use it for the next medication. Next, next patient. So there's another advantage there. And the difference, too, is the hospital, when they're making one for one patient, that's expensive. A clean, uh, to go in a clean room, it costs 150 to $200 just to put a clean suit on. And you throw it away when you're done. So we, can, we save that hospital you know, health care money because they don't have to go in just to pull up, drop one syringe. They can grab it and use what we have. Well, let's go back a step and lead up to the 5003. As I understand it, at back when we had this problem in New England in 2012, am I correct that there was a patchwork of state regulations and very little, if no, federal regulation at that point? Yes, now we have both, though, unfortunately. Right, but back then, back then it, it, was, was, it was a patchwork of states, and some states were more stringent than others. The states didn't have a uniform pattern. They still, they still don't, unfortunately. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so at that point, then, it was up to the states to inspect a facility mm -hmm. or to inspect a, 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 a particular drug from that or compound from that facility. That's correct? correct. Yes. And that was, as I understand it, spotty as well, mm -hmm. because uh, I, I've read some of the material. A person said, gee, before this case came about, we got inspected maybe once every 12 years. Now we're getting inspected 12 times a year. Uh, that's probably an exaggeration, but it shows that there was no pattern, correct? Correct. And, you know, we're subject to inspection by the FDA. 
and then states inspect us. But the problem with that is, you know, for example, one state came in, they spent three days in our facility and gave us a couple of days worth of work after that. If all the states had, we had to do three days worth of work and then some work after that, you know, 50 times five, 250 days, how, how could we function? You know, and we're trying to get to a centralized type of thing where we'd like the FDA to say, this is what you need to do. Okay, so back when it was state by state, though, mm-hmm. uh, it was not just the state where the drug was produced. It was the state where the drug was shipped. Well, there was almost correct? no regulations to stop you shipping over state lines back I then. I see. And now there is. I mean, now it's a little more difficult to do. You have to get a license in most states. Some states you don't need licenses. But generally, you know, for, for us, we're in 29 states now, and we have to get a license in pretty much every state. Now, are most of the states compatible, or do we have disparity among the states? Before we get to the federal, I'm talking about the states. Are they are they consistent or not? Absolutely inconsistent. 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 I mean, sometimes when I call, I tell them, you know, especially probably 18 months ago when I started getting licenses, they didn't even know what a 50. Some of the states didn't even know what a 503B was. I had to kind of explain it to them. Um, and, and because um, the FDA has state meetings, not all the states attend them, attend the meetings. And you know how turnover is. Somebody attends a meeting and then didn't pass the information to the next person. And just don't let it happen. I mean, we're, we're facing that situation in California right now. California, it's an FDA, uh, uh, an outsourcing facility. Um, we've been working on that license for about five months. Well, two days ago, they called and they said, well, we're not going to issue any licenses until – July of this year. Well, that's a problem because, I mean, there's a lot of, lot of people in California, um, you know, so if they're not issuing licenses, how can these people legally and safely get their medications? Um, so, I, I'm, you know, I don't know what the answer is. Are they getting everything now, patient-specific per prescription? I don't know. Haven't, haven't heard an answer to that. Um, so, you know, so when the states, you know, they they kind of um, retract a little bit, you know. They they react or retract. Um, the, 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 kind of some strange things happen, and, and and so it's 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 different, and sometimes it's a challenge for for us even to 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 follow along with these things. You talk about states reacting uh, after this New England incident, which seemed to be the the tipping point. Of all this, uh, I've I've researched and said 18 states enacted new laws about compounding. I think that's after I that. think they all did. <laughs> so you think that's a low figure? Yeah, yeah, they all they all did something. They all changed something what they what they're doing. I mean, Ohio has been quite reasonable. Ohio's like, well, we've got these facilities that are regulated by the FDA. Let's let the FDA tell them what they need to do. So let me be clear. Before this, before the 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 five hundred three B, the FDA had nothing to do with. It. Not particularly. Not except in extreme cases. It wasn't there. Wasn't the purview. Um, very, they left it up to the states. It was left up to the states. Yes. And so that's 
where we have this patchwork and we had a patchwork of enforcement, either yeah. zealous enforcement or no enforcement or, or lack of enforcement. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I mean, I've had pharmacies in, in three different states and, you know, and some states, you know, they'll come in and you don't have a, a garbage can with a lid that closes every time and they give you a $500 fine. I mean, you know, the, the, in, that's just in the pharmacy world. So you look at the different things, you know, like what was that state's individual pet peeve or choice of what we need to follow enforcement on. Um, and it's always different everywhere you go. Um, and, and that's why we see, you know, we've got a patchwork of laws for everything we talk about, other, even other than compounding, which, make, which makes it kind of tough. So we would like to see some uniformity in the laws at this point just to make it – because, you know, if we have a label, a different label required in 50 states, how do we make a label? I mean, we don't make something that's just for this state. We make it to go to many places. So you mentioned a, a group that came in to inspect the, what you were doing and it took – you worked on it three days and then two days after. What do you mean by that? What what was re required? Just give us an example. You don't have to talk about a particular drug, but tell us how that works. Well, they just basically come in and we have a policy and procedure manuals. They review them to make sure we follow them. They look at how our business operates and basically shadow us for three days. Um, the FDA can be anywhere from three to ten days or longer if, if they feel necessary. You can spend as much time as they want. But uh, um, in the, the problem with that is if you get 50 state board of pharmacies giving you 50 10-day inspections you know, and then homework afterwards, you can't function. And fortunately, all the states aren't that way. But it's not fair that some states do treat you that way and others are just like, well – will give us your information, get a license. I mean, for one state, I had to drive a thousand miles because I had to go there in person. I sat there and wow. it, it sat there um, for 10 minutes. Hey, we just want to make sure to meet you. Took my hand, gave me a license. Um, when I originally um, got my license in another state, they're like, our board of pharmacy meets for three days. We're going to call you. You have to be available within five minutes. And if you're not available, you're going to put you on next month's agenda. And I'm already waiting three months to get this. So I basically – You're in the lobby waiting. <laughs> I sat there and listened to them. You know, one time I sat I sat through four hours of talking how they're going to reimburse themselves because there was a, a, a gap in the law that allowed them to increase their reimbursement for travel. And they debated it for three hours. So I had to sit there for three days and it was St. Patrick's Day. Ironically, <laughs> I remember that. Um, had to sit there for three days and listen to all of this for them to call me up, ask me one question, say, okay, you know, we sent back and forth 1,400 pages of correspondence. Oh, I didn't realize it was that much. Asked me one question. I answered it. Okay, you have your license. And it's like, you know, and, and what, what people, what the state's got to understand is, is like every day I'm out of my business, it's cost money, costs us time, costs us opportunity. Um, and, and what are we accomplishing? I mean, what are we accomplishing by, by sitting there to be at somebody's is, beck is it, and call? Is it, is it accomplishing safer compounds uh, for, for I, users? I don't know how it would be. They asked me one question. What they could have asked me on the phone. I mean, or could have answered. We, we had already answered the question in a correspondence. It was just a, a question on the strength of a medication we made. That was the only question they had. And, and I basically got to take four days out of my life, four days out of productivity, 
um, travel, hotel, boredom. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and then you get the license. And it's sometimes it's like, um, it's like paying your dues, it seems like. So with now the 503B that you said went into effect in January of 2017. No, 2014, I believe. When 2014. It, but I'm some sorry. of the rules just changed. Just changed. Yeah. Does that require a license? Is that a federal license? Yeah, it's a federal license. Yeah, we get it licensed by the federal government. We we pay a rather large. The facility does or individual compounds do? The facility. The faci- our facility okay. gets Got licensed, yeah. So we, we pay a, a sixteen seventeen thousand dollars a year to get a license and and that's to pay to have inspections basically so they can come down to to inspect us so in we do that once a year we renew that and um and then we have to follow our procedures and we you know they come in and, and look at them talk to me about how the 503b came into existence did it have to go through congress was it just a, a regulation enacted by the Food and Drug Administration. How did it come about? Well, DQSA was passed by Congress, and the DQSA required them to come up with this new entity, which is a 503B. And the way I found out about it is we were at a seminar, and um, one of our attorney, attorney, who's not my current attorney, was speaking, and they were talking about all the things that we legally couldn't do anymore under DQSA. I mean, there's just a lot of stuff that that you can't do but we didn't know how the laws were going to be enforced. So what the FDA does is the FDA doesn't actually, they publish some rules, but they publish what they call guidances. And they send a guidance out and they go, and they, and they call it a guidance. They'll call it a review document and then they'll call it a guidance document after a 90-day review period. So they don't really call them rules. It's like their guidance says, this is what we feel you should do. And they allow us to take the rules that they have and apply them to our facility because it's not like we got a bunch of cookie cutter facilities across the country. Everybody does what they're going to do. And, and we're all, you know, every 503B's top concern is, is patient safety. Um, so, but we, we have to make the patient safety work in our facility according to the rules that we have. Some of the standard rules that everyone has to follow is the testing, you know, which is the, the A's don't necessarily have to do. We have to follow the the testing, the bud dates, all these things that that lead to more patient safety. The things that are different are how we handle our clean rooms, how we set up our clean rooms, um, how we handle our materials. We set procedures and policies up for that. So they don't delve into that as much, but they want to make sure that we're getting them. Like everything that a 503A buys, they can buy raw materials kind of from any supplier. A 503B has to buy all of our materials from an FDA manufacturer. So it's just, it's just assurance of the materials. So why would anyone use a 503A now? For sterile compounding? Yeah. Well, because we're more expensive, because we have to test product. Patient safety is doesn't come cheap. So basically, you know, our... Our sales reps sit and talk to doctor's office and they're like, well, you're $2 more. It's like, well, we test our, we have to test our products because, you know, none of the A's say we don't test their products, but there's a difference if, you know, you have to test your products or you may test your products. We have to test our products. And if you're testing all your products and you're doing everything a 503B does, then you might as well register as a 503B is what I always say. So, but we've, we, we deal with a lot of that. I mean, we see a lot of just the, 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 it's less expensive to buy it from a 503A and they do it. 
And did, did you see, though, an, ad, a, an advantage for your company to be a 503B? Oh, absolutely. I mean, a lot of the companies started out as 503As and switched to a B. You know, in 2014, we started from the ground up as a 503B. Everything we've done has been in the in the field of CGMP, current good manufacturing processes. So we've always worked in that realm. So we don't know how to do it any other way. I mean, we don't we don't use. I mean, you know, we we were given a tour of the facility today, and and I was just going through some of the products we use. You use alcohol to sanitize your hands, right? Sure. Everybody does. Sure. We use sterile alcohol to sanitize our place. Wow. Because think about anything that could live in alcohol, how nasty it is. Yeah, that's true. You know, we use sporicide to kill spores and bacteria. Well, not only do we just use sporicide, we use sterile sporicide. We use sterile bleach. You know, those are some of the steps beyond what you would do at an A, because it's like, who would ever think that there would be something alive in alcohol? But there are organisms that can't survive, and they're pretty nasty. The patient, though, has no clue whether they're getting an A or B compound, correct? Absolutely not. And, absolutely. and they shouldn't. If they're going to a doctor's office for something, they absolutely shouldn't be, but they might be. You never know. And would it be accurate to say that a 503B compound would be inherently safer Yes. Than a 503A compound. Yes. You would be assured. I, I'm not saying the 503As don't do things no, safely. No, no. But, but what I'm saying is you're assured because you have to follow the guidelines with the 503A as opposed to a five, or 503B as opposed to an A. You're following guidelines. But back to the beginning of our conversation, the rules are only so good. I mean, if you look at uh, I'm just if you're the FDA and um, I'm going to make one compound of medication, I'm going to make it for you. So the FDA is not really concerned; they're concerned. But if I make a mistake and I harm you, that's bad. It's, it's not good. But I have direct redress. Well, it's not the redress. I just harmed you. I see. Okay, one now, person. One person. Now let's go to New England compound. If they harmed 700 people. I mean, the the difference when you're doing one patient, one compounding, there's a risk associated with it, but that's one risk, one patient. Now, with our 503Bs, you know, we may make 3,000 vials. We've got 3,000 patients at risk. So we can harm 3,000 patients at once. Now, if that batch goes out and it's bad, that's a tragedy because we harmed a lot of people. Where... And, and that's where we're kind of finding this differentiation between A and B because A's are only supposed to make for one person. So if you're going to make a thousand vials at an A, shame on you because you're, you, you could cause harm. Whereas at the B, we're doing everything to make sure that that harm doesn't occur. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication is designed to bring forth the people who bring forth knowledge by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means it succeeds. The Scripps College of Communication is where one generation of thought leaders and storytellers opens the doors for the next. Educating and inspiring each other bridging disciplines, forging connections, 
pushing beyond the syllabus and beyond limits. And because all participants belong to a far-reaching community of achievers, they reach higher and further, not just ready for change, but hungry for it, demanding that ideas be heard, perspectives shared, and visions realized. This is how the Scripps College moves the world forward. This is what knowledge demands, and this is why the Scripps College of Communications exists. To make it loud, to make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Now, the creation of the B level, did that add bureaucracy to the FDA or was it absorbed in what they already had going? I, I think it added a bit of bureaucracy. I mean, I go, to, I go to the FDA. They have meetings. I know you must spend a lot of time there. <laughs> well, they have meetings for us three four times a year. Um, and we go to them. We sit in and we, we voice in the listen. They talk. It's funny. They take a lot of notes. They want to know who's <laughs> asking what. It's funny because, you know, you'll see somebody, you know, they, they'll ask some um, some questions that, you know, is anybody doing this? And everybody, and they got a bunch of inspectors are sitting right ready to tell his name. <laughs> Everybody's looking and going, of course we're not doing that. I, you know, but it, 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 it's, and it's funny night that I, and I kidded with one of the inspectors on time. Like I saw you ready with your pen waiting for somebody to say they were doing this. Right. You know, it, because it's, it's, it's supposed to be an open conversation, but that's their job too. I mean, their job is to ensure public safety. And, you know, and what, like when we have our inspections by states or by the FDA, um, you know, uh, we had the state board of Ohio come in. I'm like, oh, I'm so glad you're here. And they're like, look at me, like, what? <laughs> I'm like, well, you know, we need to we need to get these inspections done, and we, we want it. You know, we we look at an inspection as a learning experience. We look at what we're doing, and then we've got somebody coming in and looking over our shoulder and saying, hey, you know, maybe if you change your cleaning procedure just a little bit or your cleaning order a little bit, it might work a little better. Okay, you know, we'll look at that. And, and that but it's, it's a help. This seems to be, to me as an outsider, though, it's sort of a, a tightrope that you have to walk. You, you want to do things safely by, by all means. Absolutely. You, you, uh, but you also have to do things competitively. Correct. At a price point. That that doesn't price you out of the market. That's uh, correct. You know, if if there's a drug that costs a hundred dollars and it's safe, or one that costs ten dollars and I take my chances, you've got people all across the spectrum that would choose that, right? Yeah. Oh, oh, absolutely. I mean, so, I, so you have to ensure safety, but at the same time, have at a price point that's competitive. Correct. And we do that with volume because we make larger batches, and that brings our prices down. I mean, I'll give you, we have a, a facility in Colorado that we take care of. And the guy called me last night. It was late, and I just happened to be there answer the phone. We were talking, and um, we told him what I told you about this testing and everything like that. And he said to me, he goes, he goes, oh, yeah, you told me that. He says, oh, I didn't know whether I should believe you or not. He said, but one time we said that your product wasn't the same as the one we'd been using. I said, so what, what, I says, you know, I know our products are good. We test them all. He says, well, what we did was we sent a bottle of yours in and we sent a bottle of theirs in. And this is, we've done this, we've had this done three times now. Um, our product was 103.2%, which is within the 110, the 90 to 110. Right. Theirs was at 26%. Wow. 
And they've been using those products for years. And what they said was, is we thought your product wasn't as potent as theirs. I said, well, what probably happened, you got that one at 26. The next one might have come in at 180. Or, you know, so there, no consistency. No consistency. And we did the same. We had an eye product one time with a veterinary clinic. And we said, you know, we've got a product that it's a tough product because it, it, it's very fragile and very light sensitive. And we know it needs to be refrigerated just from the literature we read. So the first time we make the product, I said to the guy, I said, send them out for testing. Same kind of thing. He sent out a product that he got. And we only give it a six-month bud date. And this company mm-hmm. has given it a two-year bud date. Product was 14 days old in their possession, which it couldn't have passed sterility because that takes 14 days. They sent the product out for testing. It, it came in to be at less than 50% of what the labeled value was. And they've been using the products for years. And and how do you how does a pet tell you different? So we we tr- we try to give that assurance that you you you're getting what what you need to get. And and and, and it's and it's not that 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 the, the A's are bad. It's just that it's we're guaranteeing it to you. So with the added bureaucracy and and more more regulation, uh, albeit. Arguably, for good reasons, we still have more regulation, mm-hmm. and we're now in a political climate where the current administration seems to be attempting deregulation of of a lot of things. Do you see the FDA being a target of that? Is is it in danger? I think it was excluded. I think public safety wasn't on the list of like the the, the the one minus two rule. I think it was excluded from one that. minus two rule. Explain that. To <laughs> one people. new regulation, two got to go. Okay. Um, I, I, I'm a, you know, cause, but but the, the, but the other side of that too is like um, for, we make medications that are patented medications that are on the FDA short list, which means if you need uh, potassium. As an example, if you need potassium, there's a shortage of it right now. We're allowed to make exactly the same as commercially available product, and we can sell it to the hospitals. The problem is, is that although its products are on, the, they're available. Um, sometimes, you know, we have four or five major drug suppliers in the country, and some of them have some medication, and other ones don't have the medications. And if you don't have an account with one of the ones that has the medication. You can't buy it, and they're not going to just sell you the something that's in, that they don't have a lot of. So that we're allowed to make stuff that's on the FDA short list. What we'd like to see the FDA is to go a step further back and say, because the uh, American Hospital Pharmacy or American Hospital Society of Pharmacists has a list of drugs that's their short list. Well, their short list is a lot bigger than the FDA's, and it's it's more realistic because some things that are on the FDA short list aren't on the AHSP short list. But the AHSP shortlist is actual hospitals calling out saying, I need this. What Where can using? I get it? I'm, I'm out of, I can't get this medication. We're not using it. Whereas the FDA list is coming from a manufacturing side. The hospital list is coming from a supply side. We can't get it. So it, it doesn't do a lot of good if one, whole, one supplier's got a million bottles of something, but nobody else can buy it. So we would like to see maybe if on medications that have you know short supply mm-hmm. or on the AHP list, we'd like to see them open the list up a little bit more to let us to supply some of those medications. 
help my listeners understand this. We've been talking about compound drugs, which you started by saying are are made almost made to order. Mm-hmm. Yes, in, yeah. in, in, in a sense, uh, either for one patient or thousands of patients, but they're made to order. And we talked about the disparity between the 503A and B as to purity. I'm using that term. That's probably not the right term. But but you said some are – I'd 20, say assurances. Yes. Some are 26 percent. Others are 105 and, and within the range of 90 yeah. to 110. Does that same disparity apply to – uh, pills, capsules, yeah. oh, and yeah. and 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 how how does that compare? A, well, a compound uh, compared to you know a pill that that uh, a manufacturer provides. I'll give you a good example on that. Okay. Sometimes we usually compound from a like when we're going to make a capsule or a tablet, we compound from a powder. Right. Um, a lot of times, right now with insurance companies, they force us to compound from a tablet. So we take a tablet, we crush it up, and we put it into a capsule, we put it into a paste, and make it into like a lozenger. So we, we do that. That's one thing that we do. Um, but what we found out when we're making products and we make it from commercially available products is that our potencies swing a lot. I mean, they, you know, especially on capsules, you're pot- you should be right on the money with you know, you should be right at close to 100%. You know, we'll find ourselves sometimes in the low 90s when we use a commercially available can. And we don't test them. But when we make them like that, and whether it's the other materials in it or, or whatever the, the case may be, we, 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 we tend to, to find a lot more variation when we use a commercially available product than when we use an actual powder. Um, they also have the same guidelines. They test their products. They're between, uh, you know, 90 and 110 when they're made, and they're supposed to stay that way through through their bud date. Um, one of the things, you know, we, we there's always a discussion about generics. Sure. And one of the interesting things I found out was with some of the generic manufacturers, um, some of the major manufacturers, and we've got, it, like I said, that 10%. When you look at 10% on some medications, like, um, for example, on Synthroid, which is a, a thyroid medication, mm-hmm. or, or Digitalis, which is you used for heart, for your heart. Right. Um, you know, when you have a 10% variation, that's a, you can, that's a 10% or 20% swing between 90 and 110. In those medications, it, it's, that's a big swing. I mean, you know, if you get one, the next time you get it, one's 110 and one's 90. That's a pretty big swing on those medications. So as much as a lot of times the generics are attacked, they're not as good, they're not this, some of the generic companies have actually held themselves to a little bit of a higher standard where they go 5% variation just to take the scrutiny off of them. And as you, as you make the bigger batches, it's easier to meet that because when you're making 10,000 capsules, I mean, a pound of medication isn't going to affect one tablet. Right. So there, there, there's things that, that, that we don't think about because in, in when, when I'm making a product, when I, when I make 1,000 a, a bottles of something, um, if I'm trying to get like 0.2 milligrams of a medication in a, bo- in a 100cc bottle, well, if I'm making one bottle, that's pretty tough because that's the end of a, a pinhead. But if I'm making a 1,000 of them, it's a little easier to do. So our accuracy, the larger the bat size, the, I think it's easier to get uh, a, a more accurate um, 
reading on your medications. And the consumer, the patient out there, has no way of knowing uh, for themselves whether something's at 90 or 110 or even off that scale, as you mentioned earlier, 26. Uh, if you don't have to test, you don't know. I mean, so that's the thing. Is, I mean, I'm not, it could be right. It could be, could be wrong. But if it's not, I mean, if it's not tested, do you know? Now, it, let's add something else to this because a lot of people take uh, over-the-counter herbal supplements uh, oh, yeah. uh, of, of some kind. Uh, those aren't – those are basically unregulated, correct, correct. As, yeah. as, mm-hmm. to, as to potency. So a, a consumer probably knows nothing of what's in there, Right. Yes. And the same, um, we're in the same boat with that. Like I talked to, you know, there are companies that assure their medications with, with the, the vitamin stuff. They don't have to, though. If they have a batch that doesn't meet the standard, the only person that they're aligned to is themselves. So, you know, the a lot of times, I mean, a lot of people, they want to go to a big box store and they want to go buy vitamins and stuff there. Right. Well, this stuff's stored in warehouses. It's in big bottles. It sits on loading docks, which it's all allowed to do. But vitamins are, I don't know if you've ever had any chemistry, but if you look at them, they look like a tree with all kind of different molecules and attachment to them. And they break off kind of easy. And it changes a couple of changes in those and it changes what they are. So, you know, that's not necessarily the best situation. And also the other thing that you got to look for in vitamins is dissolution study. So it doesn't do you a lot of good if you take a vitamin pill and you swallow it and it never dissolves. Today we've talked with Ed Zada, owner of RXQ Compounding, LLC, about new federal regulations to guarantee the safety of small batch drug compounding. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer, I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum at iTunes Podcasts, Google Play, or you can do so at NPR One. We welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through iTunes. If you have questions or comments about our podcast, please direct them to me by email at hodson at ohio. That's Hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.